So this is going to be, um, before we get into mere Christianity, we're doing four weeks on that starting next week. Uh, that'll be me kicking that off. Uh, we're going to do a little, uh, like I said, a special lesson on just C.S. Lewis, kind of his life, um, a biography on him. You may have read books by C.S. Lewis. You may, not, you may have not read books by C.S. Lewis. You may not even be that familiar with him, but after tonight, you will know C.S. Lewis. Okay. Um, I've read a few books by him. I've not read like everything in his, you know, his collection or whatever. Have you read some C.S. Lewis? A few. Anyone? Chronicles. Okay, Chronicles are right behind us there. You can see there's a pop-up book. Did he do Once the um, King? No. Totally different. Uh, it's someone else, yeah. Someone else, okay. But I will, I will we'll focus on some of what he's written tonight. I, I really want to look more kind of at his life, and, uh, and we'll talk about kind of what the focus will be. But I think you'll find it interesting. I do want to start by reading, and this is just like straight off Wikipedia, but I think it's kind of a helpful primer if you know nothing about him. And then we'll jump into some kind of specifics, and there are some blanks and some things. So um, <coughs> CS actually stands for Clive Staples Lewis. He was born November 29th in Belfast, Northern Ireland. His parents were Albert and Florence, and uh, his given name was Clive Staples Lewis, uh, but he decided that he disliked the name Clive, which I can't blame him. Um, and he demanded to be called Jaxie. This was at age four, which is funny, so he's precocious. Uh, and later, his friends knew him simply as Jack, so all his friends would call him Jack, which is interesting. Uh, he was a British novelist, poet, academic, medievalist, literary critic, essayist, lay theologian, broadcaster, lecturer, and Christian apologist. He held academic positions at both Oxford and Cambridge, which is a big deal. Um, he's best known for his works of fiction, especially the Screwtape Letters, the Chronicles of Narnia, and the Space Trilogy, and also for his nonfiction Christian apologetics, such as Mere Christianity, which is what we'll study, also Miracles and the Problem of Pain, and many others. Um, fellow novelist J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, of course, um, they were close friends. Uh, they both served on the English faculty at Oxford, and they were active in an informal Oxford literary group called the Inklings. You may have heard of that. You may not. We'll talk about it in a little bit. Um, according to Lewis's memoir, Sur Surprised by Joy, he was baptized in the Church of Ireland, but fell away from his faith during adolescence. He returned to Christianity at the age of 32, owing to the influence of Tolkien and other friends, and then he became an ordinary layman of the Church of England. Lewis's faith profoundly affected his work, and his wartime radio broadcasts on the subject of Christianity brought him wide acclaim. He wrote more than 30 books, which have been translated into more than 30 languages and have sold millions of copies. The books that make up the Chronicles of Narnia have sold the most and have been popularized on stage, TV, radio, and cinema. His philosophical writings are widely cited by Christian apologetists, uh, apologists from many denominations. Uh, he married in, in 1956, later on in life, an American writer, Joy Davidman. She died of cancer four years later at the age of 45, and then he himself died November 22, 1963, from renal failure, one week before his 65th birthday. And then in 2013, on the 50th anniversary of his death, Lewis was honored with a memorial in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. So if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, they have all the famous poets from hundreds of years before I've been there, and uh, he's been placed there. He's actually placed after I'd been there, so it'd been cool to have seen him. But this is C.S. Lewis smoking a cigarette. That was something they did back in the day. Um, and uh, what I want to do tonight is, is, is kind of look at his faith journey. I know there's a lot of that that's, you know, maybe your kind of eyes roll in the back of your head as you, as you listen to someone read all that. Um, but I find his story really um, inspirational. And, uh, you know, certainly a lot of what he wrote I find inspirational. But I think from the standpoint of, you know, healthcare students largely, people that are going to be viewed as, as intellectual, um, Lewis was certainly an intellectual. And I think it, it speaks to people 
that kind of mindset, people that want to ask the deeper questions of life, which if you're here, that applies to you. Um, I think it also puts you in a unique position to appeal to people with similar mindsets. Um, so people who are doctors, uh, these are the sorts of things that really can appeal to them. Um, so hopefully that's helpful. Um, so I guess there are many directions. I could go with a lesson on C.S. Lewis, and I think the most compelling direction is to look at the journey that he took from being, this year blanks, a shallow sort of Christian to becoming a, and these are a lot of words, so to becoming a proud, self-reliant, young atheist, and I'll repeat here in a second, and ultimately maturing into one of the world's most influential Christian thinkers and authors. You weren't going to guess those blanks, people. I play that game in church where I try and guess the blanks. No, I guess in these. So he was a shallow sort of Christian. He then became a proud, self-reliant young atheist. Then he matured into <clears throat> one of the world's most influential Christian thinkers and authors. Okay. And what I believe is, is that this all began with C.S. Lewis's lifelong journey for joy. I think that is what drove him uh, both to atheism and then out of atheism. And I think it's the central story of his life. And this is Joy with a capital J. His autobiography is called Surprised by Joy, which is also a, a play on his wife's name, who is Joy. Um, but also on this, I think, really the central driving force of his life, so it's perfect. Um, and the joy here is not the same thing as happiness or pleasure. I think we understand that there's a difference. And I think the difference is just in terms of time and maybe emphasis and maybe importance. Happiness is temporary. Joy is, is, is longer. Um, it is a deep longing for something outside this life. So that from a theological standpoint, that's more of how he sees joy. And it's a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. So it is a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, but how do we try and satisfy it with things of this world? Okay, and so we take this um, deep romantic desire and we try and, and try and satisfy it with earthly things. Uh, but those things ultimately fail. And he says it's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Okay, it doesn't work. Uh, he sums up these ideas of mere Christianity by saying, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think that's cool. Uh, so uh, this search for true joy, this sort of romantic longing that we've all felt, Lewis was convinced it was a central story of everyone's life. It just took him a while to get there. So we're going to look at different sections of his life, and <clears throat> here's some photos that I found online. There's not a ton of photos of him. This is kind of an interesting one where it kind of maybe speaks to some of his creativity, and when you only have like three photos of someone from you know before a certain age, people start to get creative. But this was uh, two different toys that he'd kind of put together to create this like thing, and talking about how he was maybe he was creative. I don't know, maybe that's a stretch, but that's him right there, little Jaxi. And so as an infant and child from 1898 to 1908, uh, his parents were not very pious um, and not really interested in the details of religion. They did attend church regularly. I think it was kind of expected. Um, and so religion did not rub off much on C.S. Lewis. Uh, he was offered, he said, the only the dry husks of Christianity. That's how he called it. Um, I think it's a reminder as parents, um, which some of us will be very soon, um, that we owe it to our children to discuss faith, that's a blank, apologetics, and doctrine. I think there's a thought just in general as parents, because it's hard being a parent, it's tiring being a parent, 
that when you bring kids to church or take kids to school, that it's, it's up to those people to, to do that work and you kind of get a break. But it's really not true. You know, it's not true of teaching your kids to read or to, to, to be good at school or whatever. It's also certainly not true of Christianity. And so I think you need to raise difficult questions. You need to wrestle with spirituality and religion together. And I think dragging kids to church on Sundays is not enough. Okay, So it wasn't enough for C.S. Lewis. Um, he said that uh, telling a child one ought to, instead of allowing them to think through these areas, is a problem. Which is really why he says he wrote uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. He said he felt like taking the ideas of Christianity out of the austere, kind of high church setting, um, and instead thrusting them into a fantasy environment would allow children to experience and feel these truths rather than be forced to accept them. Which I think is interesting. And so that's really like the main reason why he took that route. Which I think is, is admirable. I think it's, it's cool. That's why VeggieTales is so good. So, anyway. Um, sadly, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he lost his mother Florence at age nine. And so it was a, obviously a big uh, moment in his life. And we'll talk about kind of what the result of that was. But um, it's also interesting to note, I think, that J.R.R. Tolkien, he also lost his mother at 12. There was another fantasy writer that was big at the time, George MacDonald Frazier. He lost his at eight. So these are three of the greatest fantasy writers of the English language, and they all lost their mothers at a young age. And so it's uh, potential that that's what spurred on their interest in, in the fantasy world and maybe trying to escape from this grief. So um, makes me sad to think about. Okay, so moving on, 1908 to 1917, as a schoolboy and teen, he's the little guy. That's his older brother. Um, this was between the death of his mother in August of 1908 and the fall of 1914. And he attended four different boarding schools. So after his mother passed away, his dad uh, sent him off into boarding schools. That was also common in that time in that region, but um, it's also perhaps because he wasn't able to take care of him. Um, the last of them was located in Malvern, England. It's called Cherbourg House. And Lewis was not particularly popular in boarding school. Okay? He wasn't as wealthy as the other kids. He also had a congenital thumb defect, which meant he wasn't very good at sports or at games, which is interesting. So because he wasn't very good at sports and games, because he was a little bit poorer than the other kids, uh, he was sort of pushed down this road of reading and maybe using his intelligence to give himself value and position, which kind of makes sense. That was his way of coping socially. Um, and this is actually where he eventually lost his faith at Cherbourg House. Um, he said it was due to a lack of solid teaching from a frustration with prayer uh, based on misguided theology we'll talk about, and then just a lack of spiritual direction and instruction. Okay. Um, so I think this is helpful as you're looking at the life of someone and how to lose the faith. He gets like really detailed about why it happened, which I think is helpful. This might lose you in this section. I find it really interesting. Um, so I'm just going to go through it and bear with me. But there are some people that he would say were responsible for guiding him down the path to atheism. And then we'll go over some people that eventually guide him back towards Christianity. Um, and maybe you'll see some of your own story in this. And I think really what the point of this is is for you to see how simple it is for your children to kind of fall down this road, um, if both if you're not careful. And as adults, I think why it's important to know what you believe and be firm on it and not be kind of wishy-washy about it, which a lot of us can make the mistake of. Um, so the first that kind of led him down this path towards atheism, I don't know if I have a slide for this, no, I don't, um, is a, a Miss G.E. Cowie. She was a school matron at Cherbourg. He called her Miss C. And uh, she was spiritually immature, and she sought truth and strange beliefs. 
At the time, what was in vogue was something called theosophy. You can read about it if you want. Uh, Rosicrucianism, that's a good word. And spiritualism. Uh, basically, let's just say the kind of light theology of the day. So uh, Oprah, if she had a book you know, club at that time, she would have books on theosophy. And I'm just kidding. Um, so uh, Lewis insists uh, that in her discussions with him, she never intended to tear down his faith. But given his profound interest in the supernatural, it was, it was as though Miss C had, quote, brought a candle into a room that was full of gunpowder. Um, and so uh, Lewis was not, uh, you know, supported by good orthodoxy and good theology at the time. And so his hunger for something beyond this world, it turned into a passion for the occult. And so it was sort of like, uh, lean this way by somebody that maybe flirted with those things. Here's what he said of it. I do not mean that Miss C did this. Better to say that the enemy did this in me, taking occasion from things she innocently said. One reason why the enemy found this so easy was that without knowing it, I was already desperately anxious to get rid of my religion. Okay, so the second person was Percy Harris, a teacher whom he called Pogo. And what's interesting is I kind of see people that were in my life through these characters, which I think is why it's interesting. But uh, Pogo was glossy all over, well-dressed, worldly, in the know, intellectual, and Lewis began to look up to this guy, Pogo, and emulate him. Uh, quote, what attracted me through Pogo was not the flesh, but the world, the desire for glitter, swagger, distinction, the desire to be in the know. I began to labor very hard to make myself into a fop, a cad, and a snob. And so, little by little, with fluctuations which I cannot now trace, I became an apostate, dropping my faith with no sense of loss, but with the greatest relief. Okay. So I kind of, I know those sorts of people too. So Percy. And then lastly, W.T. Kirkpatrick. This was his private tutor. So Lewis was really smart. And so because of that, he needed some study outside of the regular classes. And so he hired a private tutor. He called uh, this guy the Great Knock. Um, and this is from David Downing, uh, author of a book called Into the Region of Awe, which is a book on C.S. Lewis. Uh, living with this outspokenly atheistic tutor, William Kirkpatrick, who he called the Great Knock, Lewis found his unbelief reinforced by his reading in the natural sciences and social sciences. From the natural sciences, he gained a sense that life on earth is just a random occurrence in a vast, empty universe. From the social sciences, he concluded that all the world's religions, including Christianity, could be best explained not as claims to truth, but as, as expressions of uh, psychological needs and cultural values. And then from A Life Observed, another autobiography, uh, of course, not everything Lu or, sorry, rather, biography. Of course, not everything Lewis learned from his tutor was necessarily anti-Christian. In his three years of rigorous one-on-one -on -one training with Kirkpatrick, he was taught to read widely, trained how to think extremely clearly and logically, and shown how to express those thoughts with the same measure of extreme clarity and analytical precision. Years later, the converted former atheist would put this training to use in writing Mere Christianity, one of the most logical and eloquent articulations to date of the things Christians believe and why they believe them. Okay, so good and bad. So Kirkpatrick was an atheist, but he was also a really smart guy, and he helped C.S. Lewis kind of develop into who he became and really lay the framework in, largely, in large ways for the logical side of him and why he went into philosophy and things like that. So in none of these things is it all bad things. It's just the little pieces that he sees of what led to him becoming an atheist. I think he, he holds the blame to himself, but I think it's just fascinating to think about these different people in all of our lives that either lead us down one path or another. Okay. All right, so then we'll shift on into the ups and downs of adulthood. Here's some better pictures of him. You can see he always liked to cross his legs and wear really like wooly-looking suits, I guess. Um, and so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of the adult life of C.S. Lewis, but he spent the majority of it in academia at Oxford and Cambridge. And when he was 18, there was a war. 
World War I. He enlisted in the British Army, and uh, he got injured, and uh, he returned home to his studies. Well, he was glad he got injured and he got to leave. Um, I would not have been cut out for the uh, battlefield. I don't know that he probably was either. Um, this is interesting. You know, we think of C.S. Lewis, we kind of exalt him as this big character. Of course, he was good at everything he did and probably was recognized for it, but of course that's not true um, at the time. He actually couldn't get a job in philosophy, so he'd studied philosophy, he had a PhD, couldn't get a job, so he was actually forced to re-enter education in English. What's interesting is so he was forced from philosophy into English. Had this not happened, he likely would have never written the works that we know him best for. Okay, so had he studied English first, maybe we would have maybe written his fantasy works or science fiction works. But if he had not done philosophy first, it's unlikely he would have ever written his deeply theological works. And so he needed, you know, both educations to become the C.S. Lewis that we know. Um, his Christian works ultimately would not have been as valuable had he not first been an atheist. So had he not gone through that experience, he wouldn't have understood both sides of the coin intimately. And uh, he wouldn't have dug through both sets of arguments to the depth that he did. And so I think this is why I think of Lewis as kind of the perfect yin and yang when it comes especially to Christian theology, is that he has this background in philosophy and English and atheism and Christianity. He experienced both tragedy and success. He was both a commoner in ways and an elite in ways. He lost his mom. He went through a lot of those sorts of things. Um, he's a layman and a theologian, so he's not a, like a properly trained theologian, so it gives him that kind of layperson approach. And so uh, I think that really adds merit to what he, what he talks about. And I think this is providential. I think that it's sort of like you look in the life of like Paul and you see that the, the change he went through and how that made him so, so much more of an effective missionary uh, because he had struggled through these things. I mean, he persecuted Christians, for goodness sakes, you know. And so I think it's a good reminder to us is if there are parts of life that are tough, it may be part of a story that is grander than you recognize at the time. Um, so for, for Lewis, I think it definitely was. Uh, so from the years of 1925 to 1930, C.S. Lewis slowly moved his thinking from a place of atheism and naturalism to a place of personal theism. Uh, it was like a slow game of chess between he and the enemy, but he ultimately found his former beliefs under checkmate. So then, of course, there were some people that were responsible for him becoming a Christian. You'll know some of these names, I think, a little bit better. Um, some authors, MacDonald, Chesterton, Johnson, Spencer, Milton, Herbert, some of the authors of really classic uh, Christian books. Um, it was interesting that you know he, he said he found holiness in reading MacDonald and goodness in reading Chesterton, but he should have embraced the authors that shared his worldview. So authors like George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, John Stuart Mill, famous atheists. Uh, but he said that uh, Lewis found them entertaining but too simple and lacking in depth. And I love this quote. He says, an atheist who wishes to remain that way ought to be more careful about what he reads. That's cute. Uh, his best friend, Arthur Greaves, uh, there's a book with the correspondence or the letters between the two of them that was released, but um, after my brother, my oldest and most intimate friend, Greaves was a Christian, and from the years of 1914 to 1963, Lewis sent Arthur 296 letters. That's a lot. That's basically like text messaging back then. Um, and it was actually in a letter that Lewis wrote to Greaves on October 1st, 1931, that says, I've just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ. And so we have a, a real good record of when that would have been. And then there's the Inklings. Had anyone heard of the Inklings before tonight? Anyone heard that? Okay. You can actually go visit the little bar that they would go hang out in. It was basically these really smart people, several of whom are like famous even today, that would get together, they'd smoke pipes, they would drink, and they would 
critique each other's work and they would um, you know they read sections of what they were writing on so Tolkien famously would read sections of Lord of the Rings everyone would fall asleep and then he'd wake them back up. Just kidding. Um, and so it was like this collaborative group, but they were friends, and then they would argue about things. And it sounds pretty awesome to me. Like, I wish I could be invited to be in a group like that, right? Wherever that's at uh, in England, you can still go visit it. And so two of the members, Hugo Dyson and J.R. Tolkien, were very instrumental in Lewis's conversion. And then there was a guy named Walter Adams. He was just an Anglican minister that he met with C.S. Lewis regularly. And he had a big impact on him. Uh, John Piper sums this up well. Uh, he says that both Lewis's romanticism and his rationalism brought him to Christ. His lifelong recurrent experience of the inbreaking of a longing he could not explain, which we called that joy, he could not explain by this world, led beyond the world to God and finally to Christ. And his lifelong experience of reason and logic led him to see that truth and beauty and justice and science would have no validity at all if there were no transcendent God in whom they were all rooted. That's kind of like the stuff that we've talked about with all these, uh, these things. Okay, I'll take a deep breath. I know it's a lot. So what have we learned? I'm just kidding. Um, all right, so we'll move into this. This is the legacy of C.S. Lewis. We're gonna look at some of the things he's written. Hopefully you've kind of been able to see like his faith journey through all that, um, kind of where he ended up where he was at, and then how he ended up as a Christian now, early 30s. From that point on, he started writing books and, and that sort of thing. Okay. All right, so uh, one of Lewis's key skills was to communicate as a layperson and to focus on issues that all Christians agreed on. This is why he's been called the apostle to the skeptics. And this was due to his approach to religious belief as a skeptic and, and, his, and his following conversion. Okay, so there's a guy named Norman Pittinger. He criticized Lewis in 1958 for being simplistic in his portrayal of Christian faith, which that's, that's funny. You can't win. You know, you're either too complex, too simplistic, whatever, you know. So it's funny to think of someone in his time criticizing Lewis, who now everyone, which there are reasons to criticize Lewis, don't get me wrong, but it's just, just kind of funny. Um, and now you're remembered for history as the guy that criticized C.S. Lewis, you know. That kind of stinks. I wish I could be remembered for other things, but anyway. Um, and so uh, Lewis responded in a way that shows he knew what he was doing in his work. And so when I began, Christianity uh, came before the great mass of my unbelieving fellow countrymen, either in the highly emotional form offered by revivalists or in the unintelligible language of highly cultured clergymen. Most men were reached by neither. My task was therefore simply that of a translator, one turning Christian doctrine, or what he believed to be such, into the vernacular, into language that unscholarly people would attend to and could understand. So I think that's cool. Uh, so different ways of looking at Lewis. Uh, Owen Barfield described Lewis as three authors in one. Here's some blanks. A literary critic. He did a lot of that, which we don't talk much about. But fiction author. And then a writer of Christian apologetics. Literary critic, fiction author, and a writer of Christian apologetics. John Piper describes Lewis with three different but pretty related terms. He describes Lewis as being a romantic, a rationalist, and a Christian. Those are kind of like the, the, the triad of C.S. Lewis professionally. All right, so obviously Lewis is very prolific. If you've looked at how many books he's written, he's he wrote 38 books, okay, in, in not a lot of time. Over 200 essays and thousands of letters, so he's always writing. 
Um, at the time, I think this is amazing. It said that Lewis had the second most recognized voice in London, second only to Winston Churchill. And so he's really, really famous on the radio at the time. They kind of said in modern times, you think about like, you know, some big, I guess now Instagram influencer or something, right? What are you saying? Right, he's, he was basically the Ryan Seacrest of 1940s London, yeah. I like that, it's very good. Um, he sold three and a half million books just from 2001 to 2011, so he's still selling a lot. Um, and that's, in those 10 years, it's the most books he's ever sold in any 10 year span. So he's not only like, you know, declining, he, he's actually reached his sweet spot, so he's actually growing in his emphasis. All right, so let's talk about some of his most famous works. Maybe some of these you've read. Um, if you've read, raise your hand when we get to it. the screw tape letters. Hey, Garrett Bench. Just the three of us. Yes. Um, so what's funny about the screw tape letters, it's a short book. I picked, This is one of the books I picked for my book report in high school because it was so short. The Man in the Sea, great book, like 60 pages long, right? Um, screw tape letters. Well, if you want to do like a book report, you're like, well, it's a short thing. I'm going to get this one. And in my school library, all the customers were marked through. Funny, but if you held it at the right light, you could still see what the word was. So it's good. Carly Bruce. Um, it was originally released actually 31 letters in a newspaper. So he wrote them as sort of like like an ongoing thing, and then they later combined it into a book and released it in 1942. If you're not familiar with the book, um, it is sort of this. It's a work of fiction, of course, but it's letters that are written from the demon Screw Tape to his nephew Wormwood. Uh, who's a younger and less experienced tempter or demon. And so it's sort of this like tongue-in-cheek reversal on like angels discussing, but it's demons discussing. And so together the two scheme for ways to lead a human man towards our father below, who is Satan, while dreading the strength of the enemy, which is, which is God. Um, so it was a hugely popular work. Um, it garnered him international success, and it ultimately led into him on the cover of Time magazine in 1947. I think I have a, a photo of it right there. Yep. Uh, with the devil pictured atop his shoulder. So there we go. Um, I love this quote, and there's a, a little blank here, but indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turns, without milestones, without signposts. Which is sort of a reframing of the quote, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, in a way. Um, and I think it's to say is, is that none of us end up in the depths of sin and you know the, all the things that come with it, that come with addiction or that come with uh, cheating on our wife or breaking laws or whatever. We, we don't just like make a quick turn into that. It's usually a slow veering off the path that eventually leads to destruction. And that's the point he's making. And those two little demons, they kind of talk about each other in that way. You know, they talk about, well, how do we convince this guy to sin? And it's sort of like this plot that takes place. Really like a, a brilliant book and a really um, thought-provoking book. It's one that kind of, it's just one you read it, it sort of sticks with you, I guess. Okay. Uh, 1945, The Great Divorce. Uh, in this, he, he drew inspiration from St. Augustine, Lewis Carroll, and George MacDonald. And what The Great Divorce is, is it's these people on a bus, and they're uh, taking a journey to the slopes of heaven and to hell. And so it's filled with vivid, vivid imagery and some poignant discussions on joy and redemption. And so it asks us to consider the ultimate destination of every soul. I've not read this one, but I would like to. Have you read this one? No one? Okay. It was a small book, right? You were asked to read it. Okay. I think a lot of his books are short. Like I think The Great Divorce is pretty short, too. 
Alright, come out and You can put the in it. Even any of it. Take a look. Um, so it's a seven-book series, and it, it um, well, it doesn't start technically with a line of Witch in the Wardrobe because there's like the prequel, the Magician's Nephew, but that's the one that everyone knows. And when they did the movies, that's what they started with. Um, and it's here that readers were first introduced to the magical realm of Narnia and the immortal character of Aslan the Lion. Um, it's also here that the wonder and beauty of Jesus' death were rendered in, rendered in stunning metaphor. Uh, to, at this point, the three films have been made. Um, they've talked about making another film, kind of rebooting the whole thing. I don't know if they will or not. Um, it sold over 100 million copies. It's in 40 languages. And it will remain probably his most beloved work. Okay, so I know Anna loves it. You've read it to the kids and not all of it, but we watched it. Um, I read some of that in college. I didn't get through all seven, but... It's good. I know David like loves *Behind the Witch in the Wardrobe*. So. All right, and then a little bit different. Uh, this is a grief observed, and the name on there is correct. He used a pseudonym when he wrote this. Um, talk about it here in a second why um, the N.W. Clark. And so this is probably his most moving and heartbreaking of writings, and it chronicles his bereavement following the death of his wife Joy. And uh, it's a journal that very candidly describes his anger at God and his struggle to find faith amidst his pain. And uh, between bending his frustrations and exploring his grief, Lewis finds a new understanding of God's place in his life. And the account is very personal, very raw, and will resonate with anyone who has suffered the loss of a loved one. And so he didn't want to release it under his name because of, you know, I guess how unfiltered he was in it. And this one, this is the one we're going to be studying the next four weeks. And has anyone read Mere Christianity? Kind of, sort of. Yeah, the audiobook is good too. I, you know, it's one of those things where you guys are studying so much. I, I, I shudder to ask you to read a book. You know, um, but I listened to this uh, on audiobook, and it's it's actually you know it was originally BBC Radio Talks, and so I think it actually works a little bit better as spoken than than written word. But I, I tried to do that, and it's like I had to rewind it. It's so nice. It's so oh, okay. It's like yeah. I understand. I will. I think I might try it. Yeah, yeah. There's the, there's one version where it's a guy that reads like C.S. Lewis, and I think that's kind of cool. But I think you can actually maybe find the original talks, but I'm sure they're like, they don't sound great. Yeah. No. But uh, he has a really distinct voice. You should look it up on YouTube just to hear what he sounded like. Um, so it was released in 1952, and it was adapted uh, from radio talks made between 1941 and 1944, obviously during the Second World War. Uh, when he was in Oxford. It's considered a classic of Christian apologetics. And it was actually three separate pamphlets originally. The Case for Christianity, 1942. Christian Behavior, 1943. And Beyond Personality, 1944. Uh, just to give you an idea of how beloved it is and, and why we're choosing to study it, um, it was voted the best book by Christianity Today in 2000. Pretty big deal. And then in 2006, it was placed third in Christianity Today's list of the most influential books among evangelicals since 1945. Let's uh, I think it was probably to like the Bible and like, well, no, the Bible wasn't written after 1945. So I don't know what book it out. It'd be interesting to see. You can Google that later and let me know. There was a, oh, I'm sorry. I forgot, I didn't realize there was a blanks. But the, the case for Christianity, I don't know why I made those blanks. Christian behavior, I'm sorry, guys. And beyond personality. Don't you hate it when people rush through the blanks? Sorry. I usually do a good job with that. I apologize. Um, <laughs> uh, so Lewis, the reason he did this, uh, for one thing, it was around the time of the war. That's a difficult time 
for people. Also, even in that era, like Christianity was not as uh, you know engaging as it once was in that culture, um, and so he wanted to present a reasonable case for Christianity. Um, and so this book, Mere Christianity, as the name suggests, it's concerned to one degree or another with refuting popular objections to Christianity and getting at the, the basics of Christianity. And so it'll ask questions like, how could a good God allow pain to exist in the world? Obviously a relevant question in the time of war, right? Um, and his desire was to reunite the whole of Christianity. Uh, it was not a, a book intended to, to tell like what denomination that they needed to join. Of course, he was more interested in the major parts. What makes Christianity or what is mere Christianity? He even sent the book out to four different clergy people of different uh, denominations to make sure that they agreed that it was all kind of the, the mere Christianity. Um, there's a few selected quotes that I'm going to read, and I know I've been reading a lot, but hey, there you go. Um, so I want to read these. I think they're brilliant quotes, just to give you some pieces from this book. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Okay, I love that. Um, and then this one. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, with a capital H. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so you know the liar, lunatic, Lord stuff that, that originated with, with Lewis. And then this, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? And so that's uh, sort of an argument for uh, the objectivity of morals. Uh, and so there's a lot of arguments built around that. We'll get to that, I think, next week, actually. And then this. And out of the hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Okay. And then there's one last quote I want to share with you. And this is a conclusion, everybody. We've made it. Um, it's one of my favorite quotes I found uh, over the past few years because it, it really gets at some of the things I feel like the church is most struggling with right now. Maybe it's just the elbow of the, sh the, the church that I'm kind of around right now that keeps poking at me. Um, and maybe it means something to you too. I don't know. But I think we're in an, in an age right now where so many Christian leaders and Christians in general are seeking to, I would say, ostensibly 
or supposedly progress Christianity on a lot of different doctrinal issues. Um, it's nice to see an author uh, like Lewis that we'll spend you know five weeks focused on, who despite a really high IQ and also like a real propensity for like the minutia of philosophy, uh, he didn't focus in on those things, but he sought instead to unify Christians around central tenets that are foundational to our faith. And again, I think as like intellectual people, people that are you know capable of higher thought that will have heard this once of you know dental school, like you will have learned and forgotten more than most people will have learned. You know that's one of those classic, really like hoity-toity statements to make, but probably it's true. Okay, um, you can choose to like go down that like you know path of minutia and academia and get focused in on things that don't matter. Or you can come out of that place and, and really focus on the things that do matter. Um, so there's here's the quote. We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. So you're blanks. Turns back soonest. Did you already write it? You wrote it off the board, off the screen. It's so smart. Is the most progressive. Um, so I'm going to sit with that for just a second, because I love it. So it's, it's possible there are roads that the church has gone down, or that your denomination has gone down, or your family's gone down, that you need to turn back from. And, and certainly, from a cultural standpoint, that makes you progressive if you're the one that's willing to turn back, you know. So sometimes going back to the way things were is, in fact, progressive, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. But I think it does. Okay, so a couple little last things. This is a quote from John Piper that, that I really love. Lots from John Piper today. Um, one of the things that makes Lewis admirable, admirable to me, in spite of all of our doctrinal differences, Piper can't ever let doctrinal things go, but anyway, uh, and they're significant and troubling, uh, is his cri uh, crystal clear, unashamed belief that people are lost without Christ and that every Christian should try to win them, including world-class scholars of medieval and Renaissance, uh, Renaissance literature. And so, unlike many tentative, hidden, vague, approval-craving intellectual Christians, Lewis says outright, the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. And again, the glory of God and, as our only means of glorifying Him, the salvation of human souls is a real business of life. I did a bad job reading that quote. But it's again to say that, you know, you'll get to a point where you could choose to study whatever esoteric thing that may not help anyone, but it may kind of indulge your desires, or you can focus on the things that matter. I think church, I've heard it kind of referred to as like churchianity. I think it's really easy to get caught up in the goings-on of church and the administrative side. I get guilty of that, like, you know, focusing on the podcast or, you know, whatever it is like I'm doing at church. Um, but the real business of church is uh, the salvation of human souls. I mean, that's, as Piper says, the the our only means of glorifying, which I don't think he would say that exactly, but uh, one of the main means, let's say, is salvation of human souls. Um, and so should it be the same for us as Christians, parents, wives, husbands, boyfriends, girlfriends, friends, doctors of whatever stripe, closet designers, okay, and so on and so forth. Um, despite our human and cultural associations, our real business of life should be the salvation of human souls. And so my prayer for these four weeks as we study mere Christianity is that it helps reunite us in our desire to center our lives around the real business of life, which is the salvation of human souls. And I think it will.
Okay, so we'll uh, do a little bit of just quick discussion on that.